Pull on up in line with this convoy, readers. It is time for another scintillating episode of the Brother Trucker Book Club podcast with your host, Graham Bradley. This is episode 10, The Air Up There. We're talking about two books that share a similarity and that they are both about aviation, especially in the early days thereof. One is fiction, one is non, one is targeted at younger audiences, one is generally accessible. Let's jump right in. Irish author Owen Colfer, his first name is spelled E-O-I-N, is best known for his children's book series Artemis Fowl, which will be released as a movie adaptation later this year in 2019, courtesy of Disney. Uh, I think there are eight books in all in that series. I read the first three or four. Uh, Certain elements of them got repetitive, but overall they were enjoyable. Artemis Fowl is kind of an anti-hero. He's the main character, but he's a bit of a villain. Uh, the antagonists are the the good guys, the fantasy cops. If you've seen the trailer, you kind of get the gist of what it's about, and uh, I'm interested in seeing it just to see how faithful the adaptation is, because the book was was very amusing. But the book that I wanted to share with you today is called Airman, and I think out of all of the books of his that I've read, it is the very best. Uh, Colfin does have just uh, or Colfer, excuse me, just ha- has a, a great talent for entertainment. He's he's very witty at turning convention on its head. I will definitely talk about other books of his that I've read outside of the Artemis Fowl series, but I usually describe Airman as a mashup between the Wright brothers and the Count of Monte Cristo. It's set off the coast of Ireland on the Salty Islands, which I think I googled once and found out that they are real islands. Uh, Colfer plays up their importance historically. They're you know sort of an independent kingdom, very very wealthy. They've got diamond mines, and anybody who breaks the law, you know, ends up down in these prisons mining diamonds out of the bottom of the sea. Our main character is a young man named Connor Brokart, whose father is some figure inside the king's court. I'm trying to remember now some of the particulars of it because I originally read it in 2008 and then reread it in 2011, which means it has been almost eight years since I read it the second time, and I'm probably due for another go-through. It's one that I ended up buying in hardcover and put in my personal library, but I'm trying to remember the particulars of it. Basically, Connor was a a civilian, and he was acquainted with the princess of the Salty Islands. They were friends, they'd grown up, and they were just getting to that age where they discovered stirrings in their emotions and biology and so forth, and Connor was just learning to navigate the uh, minefield of young love and finding out that the princess kind of had these feelings for him. And then there's a, an evil bad guy in the court. He, uh, he stages a bit of a coup, a bit of a takeover. Some murders happen. Connor ends up getting blamed for it. And uh, his parents actually think that he's dead. Connor gets sent down to the diamond mines in Little Salty. And, uh, oh, by the way, he is a student of early aviation at the World's Fair and so forth. Uh, now, this is before what they call heavier-than-air flight. Uh, they haven't yet achieved actual airplanes. It happens concurrent with the Count of Monte Cristo, now that I think about it. It is the early 19th century. So while Napoleon's trying to come back into power in France, this little kid's trying to figure out how to build a plane up in Ireland. Well, instead of digging his way out of this Irish prison, he finds a way to fly out. Now, the process of it is quite enjoyable to read. I don't want to give away too many details of it, but obviously he gets out, he finds a new identity, he steals some diamonds to bring them with him to get some riches, and then he starts planning his revenge and his return to the court and and all of that stuff. And it's just, it's a fantastic 
swashbuckling adventure. The audio is really good. I can't remember the name of the narrator, but he's got just a superb Irish accent, nails all the voices and stuff. Just just a good, clean, fun, rip-roaring ride, and it's an excellent melding of those story beats from Monte Cristo as well as you know looking into the, the science of early human flight. Uh, now, the reason this one ties in well with the other book is that we are going to discuss The Wright Brothers by David McCullough. McCullough is probably best known for his book 1776. He is a very, very dedicated and accomplished historian. He's got a number of long, exhaustive volumes on presidents, on American history, on certain figures therein, and even on more obscure events, or at least events that you know don't get a whole lot of front and center time in school history books like the Johnstown Flood or uh, I believe he wrote one about the construction of the Brooklyn Bridge you know just things that you wouldn't necessarily think were that interesting until you get into the stories behind it and and he just he brings it to life he really illustrates the struggles of these people in their time and the things that they had to accomplish he also wrote a book on John Adams which I read I think in print it was about 500 pages real brick of a book and at times it can come off as dry just because it's so detailed. He's got another book on Truman that the audio is like 54 hours. I'm going to tackle that one later this year. But I do think that despite how much I enjoyed 1776, which just was, again, a, a superb put together. Uh, well, I'm really wording all the wells tonight, aren't I? Uh, I think the Wright Brothers ended up being the, my favorite of those books that I have read so far. Um you read about the Wright brothers in school and really all that you'll remember is that they discovered how to make uh, a fixed wing heavier than air airplane. They launched it at Kitty Hawk, yada, yada, yada. Now the problem with public school historical education is there are so many figures and events and time periods that they try to touch on that they really can't get into the rich and gory details that make these stories stick in your head because of how much breadth they have to cover. I remember as I listened to this audiobook in 2015, and it was about 10 hours long, I just, at every turn, I was fascinated by some of the things, like, wow, why didn't we study this whole bit? And then I realized, well, in third grade, it would have taken us a month to get through it, and we had a lot to cover. Especially when I was in third grade, this was shortly after the Berlin Wall came down and the Soviet Union fell, and my teacher, whose last name was something Avalovsky, you know, went back to do some family history and, and visit her grandmother's homeland. So there was a lot of other stuff going on at that particular time. But just to touch on some of the details that really stuck with me, uh, the Wright brothers, Orville and Wilbur, were the sons of a preacher from some Christian denomination in Dayton, Ohio. But they decided not to follow their father into the clergy and really not even follow him into uh, religious belief. The two of them ended up being agnostics but you know, weren't harboring any kind of animosity towards their father or anything. You know, he let his sons carry on in their own way. Uh, but he you know, he remained uh, a priest or a member of whatever religion or whatever uh, Christian sect that he was in. But they were very very interested in engineering. They decided also to not get married after seeing kind of the financial hardships that their father endured raising a family. They also had a sister. So they said, you know, we're just going to do our thing for financial reasons and for, you know, reasons of our drive, really. We're, we're interested in flight. We want to see if we can make this happen. So they started a business selling bicycles, got the business built up, found a guy that they could trust to manage it, paid him a very solid salary of, brace yourselves, $20 a week in the late 1800s. 
and this guy was all over it because that's that's just where the economy was back then. And uh, then they went about taking what resources they could to practice flight and experiment and get gliders going and all that stuff. Um, uh, what else they did? They Orville was the strict one. Wilbur kind of followed his lead. It's not that like you know Orville was a serious one and Wilbur was the party animal, but the impression that I got was that Orville was definitely the one who was more attentive to detail and a much more uh, much more of a stickler for that kind of stuff. Uh, at some point, they had to kind of take their operation overseas, and Orville had to go to Britain to continue their experiments and refining the engineering of their plane. And uh, once he got there, Wilbur was supposed to ship him some things, and Wilbur shipped it to him, and some of it arrived a little bit beat up, and Orville wrote Wilbur a letter and just tore him apart over it and called him every name in the book without really stopping to think that, hey, you put this stuff in a bunch of crates and you shipped it across the Atlantic. Uh, what the heck did you think was going to happen? Uh, they were both kind of terse and stoic in their way, Orville most, more so than Wilbur. Uh, people took a lot of public interest in this project. You know, the, the news wanted to cover it all the time. Reporters were coming out to write stories about it in the newspaper. And because of the public excitement around it, some of these reporters felt like they were entitled to get closer to the project and see it. And they wanted to come and watch uh, Orville work in the shop at the hangar where he was at. And, uh, you know, they didn't realize that he would sleep maybe five hours a night. His entire diet was oatmeal. He would sleep under the plane, wake up, work until he was exhausted, fall asleep, and do it all over again. And on the day he was finally going to go do a test flight, these reporters and this crowd all lined up, and they wanted to watch and everything, and one of them got closer to him and was like, you know, hey, when are you going to get this thing off the ground? We're sitting here waiting. And he turned to look at him, and he's like, I didn't call you here. I don't care if you're waiting. You know, he wanted to make sure that it was right. You know, he, he was a, a very rationally-minded person. He, he even had a rule that Orville and Wilbur would not fly in a plane together because if it crashed and one of them died, they needed the other one to stay alive with all the knowledge that they had gained and carry the work onward. Um, I don't know that I've ever loved a project so intensely or worked so closely with somebody on something as they did on their airplanes. Um, another quick point that sticks with me is the cost analysis of it. You know, their greatest investment in it was their time, their dedication, and their passion. In terms of financial resources, uh, actually getting the first plane off the ground cost them about $1,000. It was just their their grit and their constantly working at it and learning and studying and all that. Uh, to contrast with that, at the same time, the United States government was trying to build a plane of their own. And theirs was kind of a, a different operational model. They weren't running it off of a track and getting enough speed to get air pressure under the wings. They were trying to, to fire it off of a launcher on the deck of a boat on a river. Um, all they ended up doing was shooting three planes into the river. It cost them a total of $70,000. $50,000 of it was taxpayer money, and $20,000 of it was grants from universities. I might have those inverted. It might have been, might have been 50000 from the universities, but you get the idea. The government does not do things as efficiently as the private sector, and if, I, if there's a better metaphor for government than that, I can't think of it. Um, after they succeeded at it and they got you know the formula down pat, the government wasn't actually interested in in buying from them as much as they were interested in taking over from them. Uh, Wilbur, Wilbur and Orville tried to to present it to I don't know, you know the equivalent of the DoD back then. I don't remember the exact acronym, and they're like, "Well, we're not entirely sure about this project, so why don't you give us absolutely everything you have, including all of the schematics and notes that you put together over the last ten years?" So that got them a couple of middle fingers, and the Wright brothers took their project over to Britain and had much more success selling it commercially. 
Unfortunately, throughout the remainder of their life, they did spend a lot of time bogged down in court fighting intellectual property infringement and other people who tried to challenge them on uh, copyrights, trademarks, patents, really. That's the word that I'm looking for that they had filed. So it's just, it's, it's a much more gritty and emotional and informative tale than you're ever going to get in public school. And I really recommend, you know, picking up a copy of the, of the paperback or getting the audiobook copy and just listening in detail to the lives of these two men and the, just the passion that they poured into their work and how we kind of take it for granted a hundred years later, living in their wake where, where flight, commercial flight, is, is calm and is frequent, and it's, it's just taken off probably even beyond what they could have imagined. Um, so those are the two books for, for this episode, Airman by Owen Colfer, check the show notes for the spelling, and The Wright Brothers by David McCullough. Very, very highly recommended. And that'll do it for this week. Thank you guys for listening. As always, drive safe, tell your friends about this podcast, and I will see you out there.